Welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Bernadette Ballantyne, and in this episode, we're exploring a disruptive engineering technology first pioneered in the 1980s, 3D printing. This technique builds objects layer by layer in three dimensions using information from a digital design file. Not only does that enable engineers to quickly produce physical versions of their designs, it also allows the creation of intricate components too complex for other manufacturing techniques. The earliest version of additive manufacturing, stereolithography, was patented by American inventor and engineering physics graduate Chuck Hull in the mid-1980s, who went on to found 3D printing company 3D Systems. His achievement took forward research done into light-responsive polymers in Japan a few years earlier. Recognising that objects could be made in layers of thermoset plastics and cured with UV light, his stereolithography apparatus, or SLA printers, became the basis of early 3D printing. Just a few years later, fellow American Scott Crump, a mechanical engineer who founded the company Stratasys, is credited with inventing fused deposition modelling, which uses a continuous filament of extruded thermoplastic placed layer by layer and cured with heat. Also known as fused filament fabrication, this technique was simple, reliable and affordable and quickly became popular across a range of industries. Despite growth in new methods, it remains the most commonly used 3D printing method in the world today. Along with FDM, other methods, selective laser sintering and selective laser melting were also being developed. These use high power lasers to fuse together powders, either by sintering the materials or by fully melting them together and these technologies further revolutionised the prototyping process by opening the door to new materials in powder form. Plastics, glass, ceramics, even metals could now be 3D printed. Suddenly designers and engineers were able to create new components using the same materials as production versions. On-demand manufacturing of industrial elements was a reality. But this was just the beginning. Other additive manufacturing methods such as laminated object manufacturing, material jetting, binder jetting and fused energy deposition have also emerged over the past two decades, enabling more diversity in the materials that can be 3D printed and therefore the components that can be created. And it's not only manufacturing industries that are benefiting. One of the earliest sectors to pioneer advances in the use of 3D printing is the medical profession. From custom-made prosthetics, to replicating organic structures of body parts or organs, the applications are wide-ranging. Today, the most advanced companies are using bioprinters to actually layer living cells on top of each other, creating artificial living tissue. This printing with bio-ink could be the future of organ replacement. These ongoing developments in both materials and printers mean that as yet we don't even know what we might be able to make with 3D printing in the future. At Nottingham University, for example, research is underway that could revolutionise electronics and pharmaceuticals. But before we learn more about that, it's time to look at a 3D printing application that is quite literally out of this world. The fabricator is a first step towards developing a process where we can take plastic materials that are currently waste on the space station and recycle them into 3D printer filament and then use that 3D printer filament to make uh, tools 
medical implements, whatever else the, the astronauts might need for their mission. This is Dr. Robert Hoyt, a physicist and engineer whose company, Tethers Unlimited, is no stranger to designing essential equipment for space exploration. Tethers Unlimited is a uh, small business that develops advanced space technologies for NASA and Department of Defense missions. We've been in business for 25 years now. We're called Tethers Unlimited because when we first started out, we were very focused on a particular technology called space tethers, which are essentially long wires or cables deployed from a spacecraft. And there's several ways you can use them to move things around in space without having to burn up propellant. And uh, we still work on space tethers uh, where we can, but over the past um, 10 or 12 years, we've branched out into several related areas which have uh, proven a little bit more uh, successful. One of the main ones is we develop and provide high-performance components for very small satellites, satellites like CubeSats, which are typically about the size of a loaf of bread, and NanoSats, which might be the size of a microwave oven, and um, other small satellites. And we do... we build software-defined radios, and we have a thruster system that uses water as propellant, and a few other components. And that's roughly half of the company at this point, uh, building and providing and servicing those small sat components. The other half of the company is doing research and development funded by NASA and other government agencies. Uh, mostly focused on developing capabilities for in-space manufacturing and in-space assembly of space systems. So we're working on technologies involving 3D printing and recycling materials in space, both plastics and metals, as well as developing uh, robotic arms and connectors and other technologies to enable us to carry up or, or to launch small pieces pieces of a space system and use robots to assemble them together, connect them together to make a, a large high-performance space system, but do it using small, low-cost components. Their ultimate goal is to support the development of a sustainable economy in space, and the refabricator is a big step along this path. So if we want to manufacture things in space, whether it's pieces of satellites or tools that astronauts need. We need some material to be able to use for doing 3D printing or other manufacturing processes. Um, initially, we'll launch that raw material from Earth, but even that is very expensive because it costs you know thousands and thousands of dollars per pound to launch material into space. So we'd like to find a less expensive way of getting that material, and one option is to take what is currently trash or waste in space and recycle it, repurpose it, and use that to make new things that the astronauts need. The project was funded by NASA's Small Business Innovation Research Program. A few years ago, NASA put out a SBIR solicitation that included a request for technologies to enable recycling in space. 
And so we proposed the refabricator technology to that, and we were fortunate to get initial contract and then a follow-on contract and then, then a third follow-on co- or a second follow-on contract to actually build and fly the experiment. So how does the refabricator work? The way it works is uh, there's a drawer or a hopper that astronauts will put pieces of plastic into, and then they close the door, and uh, those pieces of plastic get fed into a melting chamber where there's a piston that compresses them and heats them. And then they, the melted plastic uh, runs through a extrusion nozzle, which turns the melted plastic into filament that then gets wound up onto a spool. And when we have a full spool of filament, then the system switches the filament over to feed it into a 3D printer, and the 3D printer can create new items. The idea itself is quite simple. Melt down unwanted plastic and feed it into an FDM printer, which will then use a digital design to 3D print a new tool or item as required by the astronauts. But 3D printing in space is not quite as simple as 3D printing on Earth. The main challenges we had to face were addressing the requirements for safety on the space station. Uh, There are very rigorous requirements for um, addressing astronaut safety uh, and and safety of the space station overall. So we had to make a number of changes in in the system from traditional off-the-shelf commercial recyclers and printers. For example, uh, you can go onto eBay or Amazon and buy a uh, little kit uh, plastic recycler, but those recyclers typically will grind up the plastic, uh, which creates a lot of you know dust and debris, and dust and debris is a is a huge no no on the space station because it, it'll just float around and get into things and or get into the astronauts' lungs. Additionally, the traditional filament extrusion process squirts the plastic out in a molten state, so it's hot and it's liquid, and and that also is a something of a safety challenge and hard to control in microgravity. So we developed a different process where the the filament is extruded in a solid state. So we have very good control over its dimensional quality and and it's not going to uh, splash around or cause any other kind of um, safety hazard. So we had, we had to develop a fairly different way of recycling the plastic into filament uh, for, the, for the refabricator payload. The first refabricator unit was launched into space in November 2018 and was installed this February. It uses a high-temperature thermoplastic called Ultum, which will be fed through the refabricator seven times and its material properties inspected. We started out with a brick of the Ultum, and it's about the size of a traditional brick that you'd use in building a house. That will get turned into filament, and then we'll print um, some test pieces, which are called dog bones. They look like little you know, dog treats. Um, they're designed to do a pull test to, to measure the strength and stretchiness of the material. So we'll we'll print a handful of those dog bones, and then we'll print a another brick that will be a little bit smaller because there's less material. 
uh, that astronauts will pull out the dog bones and put the brick back in and we'll repeat that process and the brick will get smaller and smaller until we're just printing a few dog bones. These dog bones created in space will then be directly compared to those created with the same machine back in the Tethers Unlimited lab to determine the effects of microgravity on the materials. We do see the material change significantly over each recycling cycle. You know, each time you heat it up and each time you kind of abuse it through the process, the polymer changes and its its melting temperature will change and its strength and stretchiness will change until likely eventually it'll it'll be too difficult to print with or it won't have the strength or the other mechanical attributes it needs to serve whatever role you want to use it use it for. The next step will then be expanding the range of materials that can be run through future versions of the refabricator. We're working with materials such as um, polycarbonate and polyethylene. There's a really interesting reversible thermoset plastic that's been developed by a company called Cornerstone Research Group, and we're, we're working with that. So hopefully uh, a few years from now, we'll be able to launch a, a refabricator 2.0 that will be able to handle a wider range of materials and be even more useful for the astronauts. Not surprisingly, given the devastating impact of plastic on the environment today, there's a lot of excitement about the potential for a machine that can recycle plastic into useful objects. Could this be the future for packaging back on Earth, where over 300 million tonnes of plastic is produced every year, with 8 million tonnes of that dumped into the oceans? We're very interested in being able to bring to market a commercial version uh, that could be used in you know, in factories and offices and maybe even home environment. Uh, but we have a lot of work to do to to get the cost of the system appropriate for the commercial market. You know, the, the unit that we built for NASA, uh, you know, it's designed to operate in space and to meet NASA safety requirements. So we will have to re-engineer it to, to make its cost suitable for the commercial market. Tethers Unlimited and NASA are not the only organisations sending 3D printed items into space. I just love the fact that we now have parts in space. One of our customers actually used 3D hubs to produce parts for satellites um, and these are in space orbiting around us now. This to me is so cool when 3D hubs was founded. I don't think in our wildest dreams we thought we would have parts orbiting above our heads that we were responsible for manufacturing. This is Ben Redwood. Director of Supply at 3D Hubs, an online manufacturing platform that connects customers who want 3D printed components with a global network of manufacturers. They also do this for other forms of manufacturing, including CNC machining and injection moulding. Ben says the fact that 3D printed components are now being used on satellites and in the production process for other major industries is because of the way that the technology has evolved. And this meant that 3D Hubs had to evolve too. First of all, we saw the 3D printing industry mature, and it matured uh, probably not as quickly as people had originally hoped. Everyone was kind of hoping we'd be flying in our 3D printed cars all around the world right now, but we're not quite there yet. But it has matured, and what the result of this maturing was that now more professional companies and more industrial companies 
started using 3D printing as a viable option for prototyping and production. And there was a bit of a change in our business model at 3D Hubs where we originally had the peer-to-peer marketplace with a lot of desktop printers, um, particularly FDM, and a focus on just serving anyone who wanted to 3D print parts, no matter whether you were doing a steering wheel for a Formula One car or a Pokemon keyring, uh, you could come to 3D Hubs and we could do it. With the change of the industry maturing and printers becoming more reliable and uh, materials becoming more reliable, more engineering materials becoming available, uh, we saw a bit of a transition into the new customers that were engaging with 3D Hubs and because of that we made this transition to a business-to-business platform, a B2B platform which we are today Uh, and that means we have um, much more engineering type customers coming to our website, uploading parts which are uh, been more carefully designed and, and are more suitable for 3D printing and then the slots into our professional network of suppliers that we have now who have uh, industrial type of uh, 3D printers uh, across all the major technologies. 3D Hubs tracks the use of 3D printing among its customers and major industries and shares its findings in a quarterly trends report. Their analysis put the current size of the global 3D printing industry at $10.2 billion in 2018 and says that it grew at an incredible rate of 25% per annum since 2013. Ben says the most notable trend of the previous year is that the technology has become an established and viable manufacturing method and is no longer just for prototyping. Uh, there are a few key players that are driving this forward and I think the automotive industry in particular uh, has played a big role in the adoption of 3D printing into industrial applications. Um, in the trend report you'll read that our research has found 75% of major car manufacturers in the US and Germany now have 3D printed parts in their production vehicles and so this is something uh, that everyone's really been trying to push and, and an industry that we're really trying to grow. Um, so yeah, fortunately uh, Automotive have kind of accepted this and embraced it and, and because of that other industries have started paying attention. The geometries that you can produce with 3D printing and, and the design freedom that it allows um, in industries where weight is so important, uh, we're just producing parts that traditionally just were very difficult or very expensive to be made. And this is really where 3D printing has been disrupted. Despite its increasing popularity, no one expects 3D printing to replace traditional mass manufacturing methods. It doesn't have the same scalability potential as injection moulding, for example, and printing each component takes significantly longer. But for unique components or small volume runs, it has become more common. Today, it accounts for less than 0.1% of the $12.7 trillion global manufacturing market. But if forward growth continues to mirror the past five years, then it will have doubled in size by 2022. 3D Hubs think that getting to a 1% share of the manufacturing market is reasonable, which would mean we're set to see a tenfold increase in the market size of 3D printing. An area of excitement among many in the industry is using a process called material jetting, A print head similar to those used by inkjet printers deposits photosensitive material in tiny droplets, which are cured with UV light as each layer is deposited. But the exciting thing with this method is that multiple print heads and multiple materials can be printed together. The big developments in material jetting are really coming from the material side, and we're seeing a whole raft of new uh, materials that uh, offer a large range, so durability, toughness, impact resistance, and now it's a viable option for functional parts, something that it wasn't when it originally came out. Uh, material jetting is just a classic example of something that was really looked at as being purely aesthetic, yet now with the developments of materials, it's really a, a viable option for functional parts as well.
To understand more about material jetting and other manufacturing technologies, I went along to Nottingham University to meet Richard Haig, a professor of innovative manufacturing at the university's Centre for Additive Manufacturing. Yeah, so material jetting is actually, I think, quite a really is a is a big area of future. It's one area that we work on a lot. It's it's effectively using inkjet inkjet type printers where you can selectively uh, deposit material where you want it. So that's the advantage you have uh, with the, ink, the inkjet based technologies. Um, and it's 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 kind of like your inkjet printers that you have at home. And so if you can imagine the flexibility you have with those. Then, then you can imagine the flexibility you might have in manufacturing. It's also very scalable. So in a way that um, FDM isn't scalable, um, jetting is very scalable. You just have more nozzles and, and off you go. So there's a real potential for that. And also it enables you to do multiple materials. So you can do selective deposition of different materials, so function and structure uh, at the same time, which is why from a research perspective it's very interesting. Of course the advantages are balanced by some challenges including getting useful materials from the jetting heads which have tiny nozzles making it difficult to squeeze out droplets as required. But researchers are excited about this ability to print multiple materials and more generally exploit the potential for increasing the complexity of the items that can be created. Walking around the lab at the Centre for Additive Manufacturing I got a feel for what the future of additive manufacturing could look like Richard's students and colleagues were busily testing out new materials and new methods for components of the future. Machines such as the million pound Pixtro Toucan can print six materials simultaneously. So as well as hosting the jetting nozzles, it hosts UV and infrared curing units, allowing it to undertake multiple processes and create ever more complex components. I mean, materials is really the exciting space, actually. And so I think the processes just deliver the materials that effectively make the design. So just as an example, we're working on lots of pharmaceutical devices and oral dosage pills where you can um, maybe deposit multiple drugs in the same uh, oral dosage form um, rather than having lots of pills of, di- uh, of different drugs. And so, you, and, and so you can use the complexity of the manufacturing process to create something that you couldn't make in any other way. Or going away from 2D electronics, look at your phone, it's a 2D thing really, okay? You know, what if, what if you could have 3D electronics instead of having planar uh, electronic boards where you, have, where you pick and place the chips and the capacitors and the resistors and everything? What if you can actually package that up much more tightly in 3D? All right. And so have, have the electronics in, in, in the third dimensions. Until talking to Richard, it really hadn't occurred to me that my electronic technology is indeed all planar. My laptop, my phone, the screens I use. What would it be like if it wasn't? I'd be able to use my electronics differently. I'd perhaps be able to wear my phone like a pendant or store my laptop in a tube that I'd roll out whenever I needed it. But the truth is that we don't really know what these innovations in materials and processes are going to enable us to do. And that's one of the most exciting things about 3D printing. What it won't do is take over from all of the traditional large scale manufacturing processes that create thousands of items every minute. Richard sees additive manufacturing as a complementary production method. I think we beat ourselves up with additive, actually. I think we expect it to be, to, to be able to do absolutely everything. Uh, and the reality is it's a tool in the toolbox that people uh, should use where it's appropriate. And they, and they should use one of the different seven techniques for where, for where those are appropriate. There was a lot of hype about it in 2012. Although there was a lot of hype, it basically woke people up to the potential of it. The, the only reason to do additive is you can make uh, things that you can't, make any other way or right? if you can conventionally make something then you should probably conventionally make it in by machining or casting or or some route like that but 
I think um, additive has the most potential where you can add complexity in, into what you build or lower volumes or something like that. But broadly, it's complexity in design. And so once you've decided to get a complex design, which you can't mold or you can't machine, uh, you then have to develop the materials for that and select processes that can, that can deliver that. The refabricator is a great example of how 3D printing can solve complex problems. Although it uses a well-established method, FDM, it's combined this with a recycling element to reduce the massive financial burden of launching new items into space. Critical to the commercialisation and future success of this is the performance of the materials that it's working with and its potential to widen the array of plastics that can be recycled. Material performance is also critical to researchers in Nottingham who are exploring the new combinations in 3D printing to enable the physical creation of ever more complex designs that, just like the Milky Way, will continue to expand into the future. If any of your listeners would like to learn more about 3D Hubs, uh, there are two things you can do. So number one, of course, you can come to 3dhubs.com and engage with the future of manufacturing on our website and upload some parts and see pricing and lead times and see what it's all about. Um, alternatively, and this is a special uh, offer that we have for the listeners of Engineering Matters, we have set up a landing page, and if you go to 3dhubs.com forward slash podcast forward slash Engineering Matters, uh, you'll be able to have access to uh, our trend report, which we've discussed quite a bit in this uh, interview, as well as a chance to download a sample of our 3D printing handbook, which is a book that we wrote, which has actionable design advice for engineers, Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media, produced and hosted by Bernadette Ballantyne. Special thanks to Tethers Unlimited, NASA, 3D Hubs and the University of Nottingham. Mixing and editing by John Young. Fact-checking by Rhea Owen. Rory Harris is the executive 3D printer. The theme tunes by JM Sounds with additional music by Pond5. If you like this podcast, please leave us a comment or review on your podcast app that really helps others to hear about us or simply tell a friend to have a listen. Engineering Matters can be found on all podcast apps and on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media. We're also on Facebook, Reddit and LinkedIn and you can follow us on Twitter at Engineer Matters. Are you working on engineering that matters? Let us tell your story. Contact ryan at rebemedia.com.